up if we kick this can much further down the road. We'll probably run out of road. We'll run through the latest Brexit chaos and Labour's internal strifes. And we'll find out why Chope the Dope is back in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Again. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading our latest podcast. Thanks, too, to the listener who got in touch after the last one to praise Theresa May for her indomitable spirit. Perhaps to that list of attributes, we should be adding extraordinary brass neck. This was, after all, the week that she had promised to return from Brussels, clutching a kind of shiny, kind of new deal, or at least slightly changed. Instead, she just told MPs to hold their nerve and give her more time. Meanwhile, her chief negotiator was spilling the beans in a bar in Brussels about what the real Brexit plan is. Ollie Robbins was apparently overheard telling colleagues in that bar that MPs won't have their final vote probably until the very last minute, maybe just a few days before we're due to leave the EU, and the choice on offer will be Theresa May's deal, whatever form it's in, or a long delay to Brexit, presumably prompting a furious response from the millions of people who voted for it. Uh, let's at that stage bring in Robert Meakin. Uh, Robert, so Theresa May's best contribution, I think, in her common statement this week was the guffaws of laughter she prompted when she said, look, I wanted all this sorted out in December. And it's like, really? Because you cancelled the vote in December because you were going to lose it. Then you did lose the one in January in an epic fashion. Then you said you'd come back in mid-February, and it's turned out that didn't happen. You've said something vaguely about late February, but almost certainly not. And you've started planting the seed of the idea that the meaningful vote on Brexit will be days, literally days, before we are due to crash out of the EU with no deal so you will have them over a barrel accept this deal or face chaos or maybe a never-ending delay that's a pretty high stakes game to play it's also perhaps not the most responsible way to deal with an issue of such importance yeah and it uh, reinforces uh, the the belief stroke fear this is a prime minister who is so inflexible. She can't see any other real way forward and that she's just plodding away down the same avenue somehow in, in, in the vague belief that the, that the EU will crack closer to the time of the March deadline. This constant delay just goes, goes back, I think, to the fact that you know, Theresa May's original, original stance that it's my deal or no deal well, that still essentially still stands because she's not offering anything else. She's never changed. She's never, ever changed. It's always just been, you have to accept this deal. This is the deal. The only thing that's changed is she's gone from saying they won't they won't accept a deal without the backstop to, hey, you never know, they might accept a deal without a backstop. And then the sudden dawning realisation that they aren't going to accept a deal without the backstop. It's exactly what we said months ago. They will tweak the language, they will write something in the political declaration, they may even try and put some sort of legal weight behind it or six monthly reviews or something. But fundamentally, the deal on the table is the deal they will be offered and the plan now is just to delay and delay and delay and to build up that sense of crisis and and in the meantime, commit billions to no deal planning that you hope slash expect you won't actually ever use so that we vote 
on i don't know the 23rd of march or something with the whole country in blind panic and we are kind of forced kind of at gunpoint to accept a deal that most people don't want yeah and let's be frank all this this so-called olive branch that was held out primarily uh to to labor also obviously to the scottish nationalists I mean, so far, that, that, that has looked a fairly shabby and disappointing state of affairs on all sides. There is this sense that she is kind of desperately scrabbling around in the hope that some sort of miracle is going to show up. On, and, and, and on these sort of two contradictory ways that she's going, on the one hand, try to win over the Brexiteers sitting behind her on the Tory backbenches by saying, look, I'm going to get this backstop changed, except the EU we don't think are going to do that and whatever concessions you do manage to get out of brussels are never going to be enough for people like jacob rees mogg and, and his sort of merry band of followers and then at the same time you start flirting with labor and talking about look we will we'll have legislation on workers rights we'll provide more money for deprived areas right can you get enough labor mps to back you to cancel out all the tories who would vote against you because you've done a deal with labor yeah it's, it's lovely that jeremy corbyn and theresa may are pen pals now and, and are writing to each other but there is the small matter of the fact that it will probably produce an irrevocable split inside the tory party if you get this through with labor votes and similarly could provoke a split inside the labor party i mean maybe that's jeremy corbyn's plan all along is to split the tory party wide open in the hope of winning an election and if he loses a few of his own people at the same time we won't be that bothered but there is the other small matter that this all hinges on actually managing to negotiate some sort of change to the deal in the next few weeks yeah and it leads to the suspicion really that uh she, as you say, she's not going to please the, the, the hardline Brexiteers in her party because it isn't going to be the sort of Brexit that they, they dreamt of. And she's obviously clearly also not going to please the people who are hoping for what they consider to be a more damage limitation sort of Brexit, you know, a customs union Brexit, obviously being strongly argued in, in parts of the Labour Party and indeed parts of the Tory party. No, they, that doesn't seem to be an option either. So I hope, I think clings to this belief that you know what when it really comes down to it because it, the, the days will be running out the, the minutes will be ticking by they'll finally agree albeit reluctantly to that deal of mine that withdrawal agreement i presented to them but got booted out of parliament all those weeks ago they'll end up agreeing to that still that's what i think her strategy really is if you can call it a strategy the closer you get to march the 29th the more people you infuriate and alienate along the way the higher the risk of kind of accidentally crashing out without there being a deal in place and the problem with endlessly saying all the way through the negotiations no deal is better than a bad deal is that people might actually believe that you were telling the truth and if you then return with a deal that lots and lots of people say over and over again is a bad deal they'll think well that's okay we can leave with no deal because you kept saying it was better than a bad deal which this is if you, you know, study theresa may as a politician over recent years she just doesn't strike you as a source of political character who would be at all comfortable going for a no deal brexit she just she just doesn't do uncertainty it goes completely against her political instincts yes she's been playing that card you know my deal or no deal but i i think she she'd be among the most terrified of uh, of of that of that particular scenario but 
due to her stubbornness, due to, I say, to her lack of political imagination and options and ability really to carve out another path, it becomes a very, very real scenario. A scenario that could, that could of course, end up with seeing her go up in flames with it. And Brexiteers still, you know, a week later, are frothing with rage about Donald Tusk's comments, uh, where he said there was a special place in hell for the people who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of how to carry it out safely. I have never quite understood why people are so outraged by that, to be honest. Shouldn't you be angry at politicians who campaign for the biggest upheaval in Britain since the Second World War without ever giving a moment's thought to how it might actually happen? Even if you are the world's biggest supporter of Brexit, the idea that the people who led that campaign never gave a moment to thinking about how you might actually achieve it said the day after the referendum well it's not our job to have a plan it's downing street's job to have a plan surely you ought to be annoyed at people who have led you down the garden path have had no real plan and have then just buggered off and left it to other people naming no names boris johnson there's no doubt that obviously there were hugely significant chunks of that uh, of the the pro Brexit campaign, which were utterly shameful and misleading, we, we we know that. I always say on the flip side, of course, that the Remain campaign at times was quite pathetic, and also you know just reduced to try and in, uh, induce panic in the electorates. And th- that certainly had plenty of flaws and moral failings as well. But it's obviously the Brexit campaign that comes under the microscope now, because at the end of the day, they were the people who won. In terms of Donald Tusk. He just shoots in the hips sometimes. I mean, I, I, he he's, he's, he rather enjoys his his period in the spotlight. I think it'd be fair to say sometimes with his inane tweets, which don't necessarily help. The comments don't necessarily help. Let's be honest; they're not necessarily that important either in the scheme of things. It just aggravated troubled waters already. I think it's just to say a guy who rather likes being in the spotlight and occasionally can't resist saying daft thing. <laughs> One of the common complaints about Brexit is the way that it's dominated politics for such a long time. It's crowded everything else out. Nothing else gets a look in. But don't worry. That hasn't stopped the Labour Party from occasionally indulging in highly damaging navel-gazing. And they've been at it again. This time, the target is a prominent Jewish MP. That's surprising. And to make it even more ghastly and awful, she's heavily pregnant. Luciana Berger was threatened with a no-confidence vote by her Labour Party branch in Liverpool. It was subsequently scrapped, but that only followed a furious backlash here is someone robert who is regularly targeted with the most appalling abuse as i say just on top of that she's eight and a half months pregnant and it seems that the offense that so infuriated people in her party was publicly calling out and taking on bigots doing that is apparently in some way profoundly disloyal to the leadership of the labor party so they gang up on a pregnant jewish mp who has spoken out about anti-semitism i mean that's not going to make them look like a bunch of crazy hate-fueled obsessives at all it's a grisly and foul period in, in labor's history this as we obviously we've spoken about it uh, before i mean relations between Luciana berger and her local party are obviously 
have, have been strained, to put it polite, for some time. If we dare to briefly put the anti-Semitism row to one side for one moment, I mean, she's all, she was always sort of a, considered, I believe, a politician who'd come from outside Liverpool, had been brought in there, had a lot of enemies. That's then taken on this appalling angle where the anti-Semitism also, has also come in. And as you say, now we've got to stage where they've been trying uh, to force her out. Now, I don't know. I don't know sort of how, how many of these people actually in the constituency party are the people responsible for the appalling threats and language levelled at her or whether they are other lunatics on the outside. I think, I think the whole thing is rather just gains that momentum, if you excuse the pun, as you go along and other people latch on to it and latch on to this, the, the, the hateful sort of dialogue that's been splurged out. But uh, there's, there's no doubt it, it's, it's a shameful, shameful episode in Labour's history. And frankly, it's shameful the way that Jeremy Corbyn has ducked to the issue constantly. Well, indeed, Labour revealed this week that they've received nearly 700 complaints about anti-Semitism in 10 months. And from those, I think it was 670, uh, 12 party members have been expelled as a consequence um you, you mentioned you mentioned jeremy corvin i think john mcdonnell as well has very badly mishandled this and john mcdonnell is often talked about as being the brains behind the whole thing that you know corbin's the front man who gets the people cheering at him and mcdonnell's the brains behind him and he he sort of said well well she ought to make a public pledge of loyalty to jeremy corbyn and you know put on record that she's not going to join the breakaway party that will make the whole thing go away well that sounds an awful lot like a stalinist show trial then you get tom watson saying the branch is bullying her the deputy leader of the labor party says we're going to investigate then the general secretary of the labor party says well there isn't actually anything we can do it kind of suggests this isn't being taken terribly seriously. Apparently, there was a furious row about this at the Shadow Cabinet meeting this week. And it is, it, that's the problem. It's all heat, no light. There's no leadership on this issue. There's no consistent leadership. It's all very well. Labour Party spokespeople going on TV, going on radio. And they do this with Brexit too. And they say, our position is very clear. Then they say something that is in no way clear. And then they end by saying, so our position is clear. But, but you don't have a clear position. You haven't taken a position that is clearly opposed to bullying and intimidating MPs, that is clearly opposed to hate speech online. You have equivocated on it, and that has allowed some people to think that it's OK. And it sums up sort of the, 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 the nature of the current Labour hierarchy, the, the fiercely tribal nature of the movement that now essentially owns uh, the Labour Party. Yeah, for all the foul threatening and scary abuse that Luciana Berger has received and the fact that is also there's also that, that involves anti-semitism it is all essentially secondary to many people in the Corbyn flock because what, what what's more important to them is the fact that Luciana Berger is considered an enemy and critic of Jeremy Corbyn and therefore must face the consequences. Oh, well, you know, rather inconvenient. I'm very sorry that you're also uh, uh, the recipient of anti-Semitism at this time. In many people's eyes, those people who support Corbyn, what is more important is the fact that she represents a Brownite, Blairite, Labour, moderate past, which they want to root out and destroy. And the fact that this poor woman has had to also endure such foul anti-Semitic abuse is, is considered almost by the by by a lot of them. They won't say that publicly, but that's what they think. They want rid of people like Luciana Berger and they, they don't care, frankly, a lot of them, that she's had to receive this sort of abuse because they don't think she belongs in their party anymore. This is, to be honest, not Labour's only problem. They keep saying they want a general election to end our Brexit-related chaos. 
but it doesn't seem very likely they would get what they want. Uh, YouGov, which is the polling organisation, the only one that accurately predicted the result of the 2017 election, have used the same model this week and predicted that if there were an election now, that the Conservatives would probably gain four or five seats. Labour would slip back a bit. We'd basically be where we are now, but the gap between Labour and Tory will be bigger and the Tories would have a wafer-thin working majority. And it just revives that point about Labour have not been able to pull ahead of a Tory party that is chronically mishandling an issue as important as Brexit, their support is dropping at the same time. Uh, This poll puts Labour at 34%. They got 41% at the general election. Now, a chunk of that is Labour voters defecting to the Lib Dems. That would back up another report that was leaked this week from the TSSA union that said that if Labour helps the Tories to implement Brexit, it could cost them 45 seats they would lose maybe 11 seats if they didn't stop brexit if they helped the tories to vote it through so why are they so reluctant to move if you look at labor's top target seats in this election they desperately want lots of them are in heavily leave voting areas like stoke and bolton and also some of labor's most vulnerable existing seats are in places like dudley and keithley and barrow that are places that voted heavily for leave so that's still the dynamic they're working with they think if they come out against brexit it's going to cost them a load of seats in the north of england but you know be careful what you wish for because you haven't landed a blow on the tories yet you haven't built any kind of lead you've actually slipped behind the conservatives during this process and if you got what you wanted and brought down the government and had an election the tories may well win it yeah i mean there's no doubt me jeremy corbyn let's put it very politely has been unconvincing in in recent months and he's he's had a poor brexit shall we say what i think he and his supporters bank on is the fact that Corbyn actually isn't particularly good at the nuts and bolts of politics in between general elections. He's not great in the House of Commons. He's not good really at scrutinising government policy. He's very, very scripted. He just does his sort of of town councillor rant in PMQs each week. It's pretty predictable stuff. Where he does come into his own is during elections. General election, he was in his element, taking to the streets, meeting crowds of adoring comrades. That's where Corbyn's at his strength. What they are banking on is, yeah, OK, he's shaky at the moment. We know he's not very good at this part of politics, but campaigning out on the stump, yes, he's very, very effective. Yes, but if I was going to play devil's advocate, and I am, that firebrand Jeremy Corbyn, who stood on street corners and amazed people with his powerful oratory and that manifesto that came out of the blue and shocked people in 2017 that was new to voters in 2017 if you had an election this year it's not new they know what labor is going to offer in an election the elements of surprise wouldn't be there as much that moment when a lot of voters went i thought this bloke was awful but he's actually quite good isn't he you won't have that surprise again so i just wonder if that was actually your best shot yeah and he was also against theresa may who was appalling as a campaigner, and he won't be against Theresa May next time. I mean, if, if he's, you know, if he's against, for argument's sake, a Sajid Javid, maybe even a Jeremy Hunt, could even be Boris, who knows? You know, it, I just think that they'd be more, they'd be, they'd be better campaigners. It's not difficult to be a better campaigner than Theresa May. So there's that to throw into the mix as well. But Labour are very confident about their, their army of supporters, mainly young people up and down the country. And that's, I think that would again be very, very marked, even possibly more so than last time. 
Many of them, though, alienated by the stance on Brexit. They are. So it's going to be, would, would they pull together? And that's why Sir Corbyn is so bloody ambiguous and chaotic on, on the whole Brexit issue, because he needs to keep that Red Army together for such a movement. Now, whether he can do that, we will see. But anyway, I think that's where Labour, that's the hope Labour are clinging to. But as you say, it, it could be a false one. It could be a busted flush by the time another election is called. We must briefly uh, return to the antics of the Tory backbencher Sir Christopher Chope. You may remember this is the man who blocked a ban on upskirting. He has returned this time to block laws to protect children from female genital mutilation. And all this buffoon has to do to do that, Robert, is sit in the Commons chamber and shout the word object. Now, others have described this as a new low and appalling. The Prime Minister has now said that she will provide government time to get that law through. But he just carries on with not a care in the world chope insists he is not objecting to the issues themselves but to what he claims is an abuse of parliamentary procedure the private members bill the problem with that theory is that it seems that quite often his objections end up halting legislation that's designed to protect women or young girls and so he does come out of it looking kind of like an arse Well, the man is a a buffoon and clearly a damaging one at times, because, as you say, the fact he can just shout out in the chamber and put back such important legislation is appalling and depressing. He, of course, as you say, says he's defending the history of parliamentary sovereignty. Well, right now, at a time when parliamentary sovereignty is so important, when we're trying to uh, navigate our way through the biggest political crisis since World War Two, such important issues as female genital mutilation, obviously need to, there needs to be time to, for these to be discussed, debated, for legislation to get through alongside all the major other issues we've got. The fact he's frustrated that in such a stupid and, 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 and frankly, you know, as I say, buffoonish way is, is, is downright offensive. And uh, I know he would argue if he was on here, no, it's about if I, if I let these things go, all manner of hell will occur in the House of Commons. I just don't think it, it, it holds true at this time. I think it's such a, it's such a time where we've got so, when the, the future of the country is under such a microscope, under such pressure, finding time for such issues as this as well is is so precious. And the fact he's kicked that into the long grass by playing silly beggars, I I, I think is, is, as I say, really shameful. Well, look, with all this depressing talk of Brexit and anti-Semitism and who knows what, we need an amusing distraction. And perhaps that's why Chris Grayling is still in high office. Uh, This week, he was hauled back into the Commons to explain the sudden cancellation of that rather bizarre ferry contract that was handed out to a company that didn't actually have any ferries. I will make no apologies, said our beleaguered Transport Secretary for supporting British businesses, even businesses that seem entirely unprepared and indeed inexperienced in the business that they are meant to be in. It's possible that Chris Grayling's continued presence in government is in fact a complex scientific experiment to find out what happens if you overpromote the most clueless man in politics. Let's just recall for a moment some of failing Grayling's greatest hits. <laughs> Aside from the multi-million pound ferry contract with the firm with no ferries, there was the 2018 rail timetable fiasco that left thousands, tens of thousands, unable to get to work. Then there was the two billion pounds of public money that was spent bailing out the latest private firm that failed to properly run the East Coast railway line. But failing Grayling's world roams far beyond transport. As work and pension secretary, he came up with the wizard wheeze of getting the unemployed to work for free in Poundland. 
and as Justice Secretary, he brought in legal aid cuts that punished victims of domestic violence, imposed court fees that forced some innocent people to plead guilty. But those fees were scrapped, by the way. Meanwhile, the fees on employment tribunals were ruled unlawful, but not before they triggered a collapse in the number of people who were able to bring cases. And of course, Chris Grayling, let us not forget, was the man who banned prisoners from reading books. Because when has reading books ever helped anybody? Chris Grayling, the laser-focused ministerial genius for our times. I could only assume, Robert, that the reason that Grayling is there is either that he's a convenient sort of human shield slash fall guy, or he's got some phenomenally compromising material on Theresa May that makes him unsackable. His problem is that he's now Transport Secretary, a poison chalice if ever there was one, because transport in this country, particularly rail, of course, in rightly enrages our population because it is often and all too frequently a disgrace. And that's not Chris Grayling's fault. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's the current frontman for it with the thankless task of having to explain the ongoing chaos. That dull, beige, humourless, monotone politician is now getting more coverage than he's ever had before. And we really see him for his personal limitations. I mean, he's the last person you'd ever want you know, to, to, to go out in public to try and reassure people that, that things are going to be OK. Things are going to get better. We're on top of the breeze. He just looks like a fairly affluent Jobsworth who happens to be in the position temporarily and uh, he's, he's a remarkably unsympathetic figure and uh, I, I think he may have run out of road finally, if you'll excuse the pun. Well, such is the crazed world that we now inhabit. A woman appeared on breakfast television this week entirely naked in order to speak out against Brexit and barely an eyebrow was raised. Of course, uh, we record this podcast in full dinner suits, sipping from a glass of port. Dignity. Always Dignity. Uh, that's where we'll park the caravan of chaos for now. Don't forget to get in touch via Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where you'll find us at Party Games Pod on all three. Meanwhile, at PartyGamesPodcast.com, you can catch up with all the past episodes. Who wouldn't want to relive the last few months? And you can subscribe too from Apple Podcasts, even Spotify these days. Thanks to Robert, to you for listening. For now, bye-bye. Mm-hmm.